Hi, it's a long weekend. Huh? This uh, Monday is a holiday. And the question is, why are you all still here? <laughs> I, I know there's a group in uh, Batam. I hope they're watching a uh, live stream. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, when a friend of mine told me that he's joining a licensed money lending company as a debt collector, I raised an eyebrow. I mean, he does look the part. He's as tall as a giraffe, as sturdy as an elephant, and when he clenches his fists, they are as big as watermelons. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. Huh? However, people who know him uh, know that he's a nice guy. He laughs easily, drives church members home, uh, takes elderly aunties uh, out for meals. A bear of a man, but inside, 100% cotton. Someone like him working as a debt collector. Hmm. Even though he explains to me that it's a legal uh, job and they do not use harassment tactics, it is hard to believe that you don't have to pound on doors, raise your voice, or argue with nasty debtors to do the job well. The well-known stereotype of the debt collector makes me suspicious of his new work. And this stereotype is also the reason why I cannot imagine my friend working as one of them. Our parable in Luke 18 contains the stereotypes of two ancient professions. We must understand these stereotypes to appreciate what Jesus is teaching. Let's talk about the tax collector first. Tax collectors are employees of Roman-owned tax farming companies. In those days, tax farming companies bid for the rights to collect taxes in individual provinces uh, like Judea. The highest bidder pays the provincial taxes to the empire and thereafter collect taxes from the people living in the province. Obviously, they were trying to collect uh, more than they're paid to make a profit. Tax collectors are hired by these companies to do the legwork. They're paid a commission based on the amount that they collect for their company. The more people they collect taxes from and the more money they collect from the people, the larger their commission. The entire system is open to corruption. Here's a fictional example to illustrate the situation. Yeah, my examples all Taoswana, Prata, or bicycle, you know. Okay. So, say, a member of our refreshment ministry is bringing homemade Taoswan to church. When she exits Queenstown MRT station, she encounters a tax collection booth. The tax collector informs her that she has to pay tax for bringing food into Queenstown, about 2 to 5% of the market value of the food. Question is, how much is her Taoswan worth? Our member tells the tax collector, this one is homemade one, very cheap, lah. Oh, maybe less than $1 a bowl. But the tax collector argues that while the cost price is low, the selling price is high, because this is a unique homemade recipe, should be worth $5 a bowl. By the way, the assessment of the tax collector is final. You either pay the money or you go home. So Bobian, our member, have to feed us, pays and continues her way. It so happens that the tax farming company in charge of uh, Queenstown is a greedy one. Before she gets to church, our member will run into another tax collection booth where she must pay tax for bringing food into Dundee Road. Maybe she can avoid this by walking in the other direction and coming from the back of the church, right? Uh, but this tax farming company learned from Singapore, ERP, uh, they have a tax collection booth along the PCN as well. And this one charges separately for the Yuzakui. All this sounds pretty ridiculous, but uh, this is the way tax collectors operate in those days. 
Naturally, the Jews hate tax collectors because of multiple collection booths, dubious market evaluations, and intimidation from them. But there are also political and religious reasons. Politically, tax collectors are Jews who willingly serve Roman masters. As such, the Jews see them as national traitors. Religiously, corrupt, corrupted tax collectors violate the commandment against stealing. In fact, they're practically robbers. Thus, Jews regard them as unclean sinners and ostracize them. What about the Pharisees? The name Pharisee means one who separates himself or separatist. They are the descendants of a Jewish school of thought known as the Hasidians or the pious ones. One theory states that the Hasidians supported the Maccabees in resisting the influence of Greek culture on the Jews. However, they separated themselves from the Maccabees prematurely and did not support the Jewish independence movement, hence labelled separatists. Another theory says that the Hasidians changed their name to set themselves apart from the general uh, Jewish population in order to form a true community of Israel. Well, neither theory has been proven due to lack of information. Regardless of their origin, we know that the Pharisees are not ordained priests, but lay people. Although all of them are devoted to the study of the law, only those who receive formal training are called scribes. And as a group, they are famous for their precise observance of the law, especially fixed hours of prayer, frequent fasting and tithing. Jesus captures their traditions in his parable. His Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the law only requires fasting on the Day of Atonement, which is once a year. But a typical Pharisee goes above and beyond the law. And similarly, the law only requires people to tithe what they produce from their field or get from their livestock. But the Pharisee tithes everything he receives. If there were Pharisees today, they would probably tithe the disposable cutlery, containers and plastic bags they get when they tap out food. Apart from inventing traditions, the Pharisees also shaped the Jewish way of life. They introduced regular daily prayers in the temple. They were the ones who started synagogues in every Jewish community. They conduct lessons uh, teaching believers how to practice the law. Their scribes are members of the highest Jewish court of law. Since the Pharisees are pretty much present in every Jewish community and hold positions of power, they have a lot of influence among the Jews. And the Jews love them because of their godliness and righteous conduct. Thus, they greet the Pharisees in the marketplaces, reserve the front row seats for them in the synagogues, and give them VIP seats at banquets. Now that we've covered the background, let's look at our parable. The parable begins with two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And it ends with, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. If parables reveal a truth about the kingdom of God, then these verses indicate that our parable is about who enters the kingdom. Given the popular stereotypes of Pharisees and tax collectors, which I painstakingly explained, if you were listening to the Jews then, who do you think will enter the kingdom of God? I see. 
Thank you, Pharisees. The crowd listening to Jesus would think that this tax collector is a dishonest and disloyal man who does not deserve to stand before God like the rest of them. On the other hand, they would think that this Pharisee must be a holy and righteous man who is accepted by God. However, Jesus goes against popular expectations and pronounces that this tax collector is the one who entered the kingdom of God instead of this Pharisee. The crowds must be amazed, and so must we, because Jesus seems to be implying that obeying the law will not guarantee you a place in heaven. Disobeying the law will not keep you out of it either. What is this radical teaching? To be sure, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. The law must still be obeyed. However, to enter the kingdom of God, we must depend on God's work and not on our own works. We'll look at this message in two parts. Part one, depend not on your own works. Verse nine says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He also told this parable, tells us that this parable is connected to the earlier parable of the widow and the unjust judge, which we heard from Reverend John last week. Now, after encouraging the crowd to never give up on praying, Jesus quickly cautions those who have been praying frequently, even unceasingly, for they were beginning to think that they are righteous before God because of their good works. Jesus follows up immediately to warn them against trusting in their own ability to pray. Since he was at it, Jesus uses the stereotype of the Pharisee to portray somebody who prays more, worships more, fasts more, tithes more than everyone else. In this way, he tackles every form of disobedience of obedience that may lead people to think that they are morally superior. And he says that even this model of good works is not enough for the kingdom. This Pharisee is not good enough because he depends on his own works instead of God's works. His self-dependence is revealed in his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. Notice that apart from addressing this prayer to God, the entire prayer is all about the Pharisee and what he does. It's all my obedience, my practice, my contribution. Did God do anything for him? No. Is he asking God to do anything for him? No. Does he need God in his life? A person who has no real need of God has no real reason to enter the kingdom of God. For if you do not need God, do not want God, do not love God, why go to the kingdom and be stuck with him forever? It's certainly not because of love for the people in the kingdom. Because verse 9 says that those who trusted in themselves also treated others with contempt. That is to say, they hate people. For example, our Pharisee clearly despises other men. Compared to himself, everyone else is violent, crooked, unfaithful. He even despises this tax collector who has come to repent of his sins. In the eyes of this Pharisee, this tax collector is so evil, even his repentance is worthless. 
This Pharisee has no mercy and no love for anyone. And so we see the danger of self-dependence. Anyone who depends on their own works to enter the kingdom of God ends up hating God and hating people. Ironically, they are unable to enter the kingdom because they do not fulfill the law. Even more ironically, they are unwilling to enter because they hate everybody inside. To avoid this horrible fate, we must heed Jesus' caution and not depend on our own works. Christians know that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Our obedience to the law are expressions of our faith and contributes to our own well-being. Nevertheless, our tendency to depend on our own works doesn't die off just because we have faith. It can manifest in other twisted ways. For example, when asked to serve as service leaders or lay readers or anything that requires us to come on stage, we decline saying, I'm not holy enough. Please ask somebody else more worthy. We are saved by faith, but we continue to condemn ourselves for the lack of holiness and good works, as if it matters. Or when a fervent member suffers a severe illness, when a faithful church leader's business fails, when a full-time church worker loses her newborn child, we hold God accountable. How could you allow this to happen to your faithful servant who have served you so many years? We may not be doing good works to earn our own salvation, but we're still working for health, wealth, and prosperity. More often than not, we're also working for other people's salvation, especially when we think that it is up to us to save souls. Sarah was a young Christian who thought it depended on her. She's a young undergraduate serving in multiple ministries in her church and on campus. The journey from her church to university takes about 90 minutes, and she made the trip several times. Most days, she had to sacrifice dinner to get to church on time. It was stressful to juggle her assignments with church ministry and cell group. Nevertheless, she believed that she's doing the right thing, serving God and persevering in service. Eventually, she experienced burnout. In her article, Sarah identifies three symptoms of church burnout. One, dependence on human strength and ability. Sarah felt that if she stopped serving, things would fall apart. Two, need for approval. Sarah expected to be recognized for her efforts. This led her to resent her church when she was chided for skipping meetings, but seldom appreciated for sacrificing herself. Finally, resentment toward God. Why is God making it so difficult to serve him? And how can God allow her church to treat her like that? As she reflects on her experience, she recognizes that when she thought that it all depended on her, she stopped serving God and was ultimately serving herself. I realized the culprits were my pride in my God-given abilities, a myopic view for others' approval, and a secret resentment toward God 
when plans did not turn out my way or when I was not acknowledged for my efforts. I wrapped up my service as ministry unto others when some of it actually became ministry unto self. Fortunately for Sarah, she still had church mentors she didn't resent. With their counsel and guidance, she relinquished her church ministries to focus on loving God and serving Him on campus. But others may not be so fortunate. There are people who become so bitter towards Christ and His church that they leave and never come back. I believe that many among us can relate to this experience because we are all tempted to live up to the false stereotype of a good Christian. When we start serving in church, everyone wants a piece of us. Knowing that it is the right thing to do, we pile on various ministries and responsibilities. But when time and energy run low, we start to resent other members who are not serving as much or as well as we are. We continue to persevere in spite of these feelings, expecting God and the church to reward us and discipline them. Sadly, all these are telltale signs that we have started to depend on our own works. In our Christian walk, we will be tempted to trust in ourselves instead of God. This path leads to a horrible fate away from God and his people. Is there anything we can do about it? Well, the only remedy is to ask God to help us, like the tax collector in our parable. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful here is not the usual plea for mercy which we come across so often in the Gospels. The Greek word used here is only used twice in the Bible, and it is loaded with meaning. So I've tried writing a few different versions of it to capture the full sense of what he's asking from God. God, atone for my sins. God, please stop being angry with me. God, I know I'm a sinner, but please grant me favor with you. The Greek word, indeed the entire prayer, emphasizes the initiative of the person to whom the plea is addressed to. What I mean is, God is called upon to take action on behalf of the sinner. This is similar to Jeremiah's prayer, actually, which you heard in our reading. Act, O Lord, for your name's sake. In contrast to the Pharisee, the tax collector does not presume that he can do anything about his standing before God. His actions reveal this attitude. He stands far away in remorse because he doesn't think that by coming to the temple, he can pacify God's anger. He looks down in fear because he doesn't think praying will make God forgive him. He beats his chest in sorrow because he doesn't think that his confession will result in God's mercy. Furthermore, even though he's in a temple, he trusts not in offering sacrifices. 
Recognizing his utter helplessness to do anything, he expresses his utter dependence on God by asking God to help him. How may we also do the same? Certainly, we should continue serving in proportion to our faith and talents. However, before and after and during, we seek God. We fall on our knees and confess that all our works are useless unless God does his work. If we think we're the only ones who can serve in our position, ask God to remove such pride. If people tell us we're the only ones they can depend on, ask God to remove this burden. Just as there is no power in prayer, there is no power in our service. We are utterly dependent on God. Coming back to our parable, we already know the outcome of the story. God forgives and accepts the repentant sinner. But the story isn't complete until we tell of God's work. Jesus made the tax collector in his parable cry out to God for atonement because he knew what God was planning. Following Luke's gospel, Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem soon, where he would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He would be lifted up on the cross as a living sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. Thus, in a way, Jesus cried out for his own death in the parable, so that we may be saved. Yet what happens to Jesus is not his own doing, so that no man may boast. I mean to say that the Son of Man did not surrender himself to his enemies. He waited to be betrayed by the one appointed by the Father. The Son of Man did not take his own life to get it over and done with. He had to be afflicted and be crucified, according to God's word. And the Son of Man did not come back to life on his own. He had to be resurrected by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, we are not saved by the works of any human being, but by the work of God in Jesus Christ. Due to his utter dependence on God, Jesus is exalted. If we imitate Christ, we shall be awarded the same glory because this is the final conclusion. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What does this mean, Bekshima? So, uh, Michelangelo's masterpiece provides a visual interpretation of this verse. In the detail on your left, we see angels beating down those who are forcing their way up. In the detail on your right, angels are pulling up those who are too weak to ascend. Truly, everyone who lifts himself up into heaven by his own works will be brought down by God. But those who remain helpless, God will lift up into heaven. Let us pray. Almighty God,